With summer comes heat, and with heat comes hazard. As a loyal listener of the Live Inspired podcast, you all know by now that the Keeley Companies is the leader and single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. Keeley Companies also understands that there is nothing more important than returning their team members home safely to their family each and every day. As we begin heading into the hot summer months, their very own VP of Risk Management, Rob Miller, has three key tips to staying safe in the summer heat. Rest, water, and shade. If you're going to be outside this summer, don't forget the importance of rest and water and shade. By empowering Keelians to do their part and follow practical tips for safety, it's clear why Keely Companies is recognized for their world-class safety culture, Keely Safe. You can learn more about Keely Safe and the work of Keely Companies by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. In our always-on, productivity-addicted lifestyles, we tend to think of the pursuit of fun as being indulgent, maybe even childish. We claim not to have time for fun, even though we spend hours a day engaging in what today's guest is going to call fake fun. So what's fake fun? Fake fun includes activities like binge-watching Netflix or endlessly scrolling through Twitter, staying up on Instagram, all in the hopes of filling some kind of emptiness that is deep inside all of us. Catherine Price, that's our guest today, is an award-winning science journalist and screen life balance expert. She's also the author of The Power of Fun. It's primarily what we'll be talking about today. And How to Break Up With Your Phone. Two great books, The Power of Fun and How to Break Up With Your Phone. She's the creator and founder of ScreenLifeBalance.com. She's continued the mission to create evidence-backed resources to help people around the world design lives in which they control their technology rather than the other way around, with the ultimate goal of increasing happiness and productivity and creativity, health and well-being. In other words, Catherine Price helps people scroll less, live more, and have fun. You're going to love this episode, and it's the kind of episode that I'm going to encourage you to share with family members, with friends, and definitely with coworkers in this marketplace with so much negativity, so much cynicism, so much divisiveness, so much pain and struggle. We all face it. Having a little bit of fun is actually exactly what I think we need right now in our lives. You're going to love this episode, so my friends, get ready to get it started with my friend and soon-to-be-yours, her name, Catherine Price. Catherine Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm already on with a friend right now. So for those who have not yet read your books or heard your talks, they haven't met you yet through an interview. If you were to introduce yourself, what would you say you do professionally? I have been devoting myself to trying to help people scroll less and live more and have more fun while doing so. 
Well, we're going to be talking about scrolling less and living more, doing more and having more fun while we do those things today. But I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit beyond your research, beyond your books, beyond your education, all the way to childhood. Where did you grow up? And, and just talk a little bit about that, those experiences as a kid. I grew up in New York City, like in the middle of the city. The thing that stands out to me that might be relevant to this is that I was a very shy kid who didn't like going outside of my comfort zone and didn't like engaging with other people very much, which is not how I am now. And I'm not really sure how that shifted exactly. But yes, I grew up in the middle of New York and had a very urban childhood. What's it like to be a kid growing up in Manhattan? You know, People ask me that. I'm not sure what to say because I don't know what it's like to grow up anywhere else, obviously. But I would say that even it was certainly not an unstructured, like go out and play with other kids in the backyard situation since we didn't have a backyard. It was pretty cool to have New York City as your backyard though. So definitely did a lot of things with my, I'm an only child. So a lot of things with my parents going to shows or spending time in Central Park or just doing New York stuff, which was pretty fantastic and amazing. But yeah, a lot of things that are totally normal to other people, like football games or like going and hanging out at someone's house. Like that was not really my existence at all. I did, I went to a prep school, I did sports. So I mostly did homework and like swam (laughs) most of my leisure time in high school. As you're going to plays and doing a little bit of homework and swimming a little bit, as you look toward university, what were you thinking you would do professionally? I never knew what I would do professionally. I always liked to write, but I never felt like I fit into any category in terms of professional aspirations. And I remember having like weeping breakdowns in my um, bedroom during college summers where I would have these random internships and be just so miserable at them and think, am I ever going to fit in anywhere? Am I ever going to find anything that I want or like to do? And I, you know, vaguely thought I'd be really great to find a way to be paid to be me. That was as far as I could get. And in fact, that is what I've tried to do. I I had a college professor who talked about this concept called creative drift, as Mm. he referred to it. And the idea there was that as you go through life, you should do your best at whatever you're doing and be open to whatever opportunities might present themselves to you and then follow what seems the most interesting. And in so doing, you'll end up with a much more interesting life than you would if you just had a specific goal that you tried to work towards linearly. And that really stood out to me. So I've always tried to take that to heart as well. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't ever feel like I had, there was never a specific career I wanted or thought I could fit into. I I felt very much on the outside of that. So you eventually graduate university. You're not quite yet being paid to be you. What what was your first job coming out of school? (laughs) Uh, my first job coming out of school was as an ice skating instructor at Walman Rink in Central Park, um, coupled with tutoring Latin and math for prep school students in Manhattan. I realized there's, there is a captive audience for Latin <laughs> in particular because there's there, most of the prep schools at that point at least required it, and most kids are really bad at it. And <laughs> I had a great Latin teacher in high school, and I loved Latin. I didn't take it during college, but when I moved back to New York and was you know, teaching four and five year olds to ice skate in the park, which by side note is the best office I've ever had because it was in the middle of Central Park with a full view of Central Park South and the skyline. It was really beautiful, cold, but beautiful. But yeah, I I realized that the most lucrative thing I could do as I was trying to establish establish myself as a freelance writer was to tutor kids in Latin and then middle school math. So those, those were my first 
jobs. I would have benefited from you in uh, what 1991 through 1994 or so back in high school. That would have been a very <laughs> helpful thing for me to have. Probably the first book that put you on the forefront of a whole lot of readers' minds. And it was that idea of how to break up with your phone, which is, by the way, a brilliant title for a book. Talk about where the, the, the concept for that book came from. <laughs> sure. So I'd say that the theme tying all these books together, because on the surface, they might seem very unrelated, is that I am just very curious about well, the world in general, but also how these external influences affect us. And also thinking about things we don't typically think about. So whether it's vitamins or phones or fun, just thinking about having a more curious perspective on them. So how to break up with your phone. I didn't have any particular interest in technology per se. And, but I do have a longstanding interest in living a, you know, a rich and fulfilling life and an intentional life. And and around 2015 or 2000, well, I had a baby in 2015. And sometime around 2016, I just remember having these experiences where I'd be up with her in the middle of the night and I'd see her looking up at me and I would be looking down at my phone. And that really affected me. I have done enough mindfulness classes and um, mindfulness-based stress reduction training and stuff like that to have trained myself to be self-aware of what I'm doing in the moment and ask myself if it really is what I want to be doing. And it just horrified me to realize that I was staring down, in this case on eBay, while this baby was looking up at me. And also my background as a science journalist made me remember a couple of things that really upset me. One was the idea that, or the fact that babies focal length, I mean, they only can focus like basically where their caregiver's face would be. It's a very short focal length, presumably so that they can create an emotional bond with whomever is holding them. And here I was not returning her gaze. And that I just thought that's not good <laughs> on a very deep level. And then I also remember this series of experiments known as the still face experiments, where researchers basically had parents re um, interact normally with their babies for a minute or two, and then go totally still faced, so not respond at all to anything that the babies were doing for another minute. And then they went back to normal. And if you want to have a quick cry when you're listening to this podcast, just Google still face experiment. There's like a two minute clip from Harvard with Ed Tronick that will pop up where you can see an example of this experiment. And it's really hard to watch because the baby goes through these stages of confusion about what's happening and then anxiety and distress. And by the end of just this like minute long of the mother in this case not responding, the baby is squealing like kind of animalistically shrieking and trying to physically get out of the seat that they have the baby in. And it just occurred to me, oh my God, like we're all doing that to each other all the time. We're all still facing each other. And they've subsequently done follow-ups of that with cell phones. Anyway, all that is to say, in that moment, I realized I don't want to be living this way. I don't want this to be my daughter's impression of a human relationship. I need to change. And also, I'm not the only person struggling with this. It was just at this point in 2016, not too many people were talking about it. And I couldn't find any book that actually provided a guide as to what to do about it. There were a few that talked about the problems, but not what to do. There was no solution. So I decided to create a solution. So that's the origin story of uh, how to break up with your phone. So I'm, I want to spend a little bit more time here because I think a lot of us still need to break up with our phones. We, uh, we're clinging a little bit too tight to that, that screen in front of us. On average, what, about five hours a day we hold on to this phone? Well, before the pandemic, the best statistic I could find was that the average American was spending upwards of four hours a day on their phone. And that's just phones. It's not laptops, not your iPad, not your desktop, just the phone. And that adds up to 60 full days a year. It's a quarter of our waking lives. Wow. And then what I always have to 
fact check my math on this, but if you do the math, it's 36 40 hour work weeks, which is what nine months. So like, how are we manufacturing nine months of work weeks out of thin air? And then we think we don't have time to do anything else. And like, obviously, some of that time is used on things that are essential, or we really are working, or it's making our lives more efficient, or we're enjoying it. But there's an awful lot of time that is not falling into any of those categories. Um, and I just think that's a really important wake up call for all of us. Why don't we talk about that time? So some of it is important. We're map questing our way to the bakery or whatever it else, whatever else we're doing for the time that we are just spent aimlessly and mind, mindlessly just kind of swiping, 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 clicking, hearing the bells and the whistles. What's the negative consequence of that? There's a lot of negative consequences to that. And how to break up with your phone, like the first half of it is a look about at why it's so hard to look away from these devices and then a look at what it's doing to us. And I've only become more radicalized since that book came out in 2018. So I think it's doing a lot of different things. One of the main things it's doing is scattering our attention and encouraging us to exist in what this tech expert Linda Stone refers to as a state of continuous partial attention, Mm -hmm. which is what it sounds like trying to pay attention to multiple things continuously. And that's a problem because the human brain actually can't multitask, where multitasking is defined as paying attention to two cognitively demanding things at once. So like, sure, you can fold your laundry while you're listening to the radio, but folding laundry is not requiring your brain to think in the same way. But you can't, for example, like I couldn't have this conversation with you and be answering a text at the same time or an email or, you know, or doing something that requires my cognitive capacities. But we're trying to do that all the time. And not only is that destroying our ability to focus but it's also destroying our ability to be present in our own lives. So you're not really experiencing your own life, which I think is the biggest tragedy of it, but you're also training your brain to be even more distractible than it was already. So if people are feeling like, I can't focus the way I used to, I can't remember things the way I used to, I can't get through a magazine article, let alone a book without wanting to, just having this craving to check something, that's because of this repeated stimulation and dopamine hits that we're getting from our devices. But they're also having huge impacts on our relationships um, with other adults, with our children, where we're not really fully present. So we're not giving each other our full attention. And that has a real impact. So I think that the fact that we're ta- we're constantly hypervigilant, feeling like we're on call for potential emergencies at all times from our devices, is actually having an impact on us physiologically. I wrote an article where I got to interview a bunch of neuroendocrinologists about this to say, do you think that that actually could be causing an increase in stress hormones that could be detrimental to our health in the long term? Because stress in the long term is well-documented to be very bad for us because of the sustained increase in cortisol that it triggers. And every single one of these neuroendocrinologists said, that's not a crazy idea. That makes a lot of sense. So I think that they're affecting us on not just a mental and emotional level, but also on a physical level. And at the end of the day, like the advent of cell phones and the way that we're interacting with our screens these days, I think is really, it's affected the fundamental experience of being human. And you can think what you want about that. Some people may be totally fine with how it's changing us, but it is changing us. And to me, at least, I want to be very careful and intentional about how I'm letting those changes happen. I don't want, I don't want technology to be my master. <laughs> I want to be in control of it. You talked before we hit record about notifications, phone notifications, and then you've challenged your readers and then those who've heard you speak live. Change the word notification to distraction. <laughs> Because no, that's interruption, interruptions. Interruption. Tell me why that's, that, that matters. It's a notification, Catherine. <laughs> well, this actually was an idea that came to me very recently in the past couple of months. But I was like, well, what are these, quote, notifications 
doing and whose interests are they serving? Because if you call it a notification, that makes it sound like it's something important that you need to know about. It's notifying you. You should be grateful for this notification. But if you think about what you're actually being notified for most of the time, it's not actually something that's important to you. It's something on social media or a news story or just something that's not, you know, a price drop on eBay or something. Those are all there to get you to pay attention to the app because that is the way that the companies behind the apps make money. What they're really doing is interrupting you. And the way that I think about a lot of this is really in terms of opportunity cost. Every time you allow yourself to get interrupted by a so-called notification, what's the opportunity cost? What is it interrupting you while you're in the, what, you know, what are you in the middle of when that interruption happened? Even if it's just for a moment, you could be doing, you know, coffee with a friend. You could be on your own reading a book, attempting to read a book because your focus is shot. You know, what is it interrupting? So for me, at least, that was a very useful reframing to be like, oh, okay, well, what do I want to be interrupted for? What's worth it? You know, and what do I not want to be interrupted for? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be interrupted in the middle of bedtime with my daughter. Like, I don't want to. That's rude. And it also helped me reframe when to contact other people, you know, not in terms of notifications per se, but like if you're sending an email, for example, and you're worried they have their notifications on for email, what are they in the middle of? That was inspired by a comment I once heard by Tristan Harris, who was a former Google product philosopher, and now he runs the, and founded the Center for Humane Technology. And I remember he was he wrote about being in the room when this group of engineers was deciding whether or not alerts for Gmail should be on by default. And they said, yes, they should be. And Tristan Harris pointed out that no one put any thought into the, as he put it, billions of dinnertime conversations that now would be interrupted by the ping of a new email. And that really stood out to me as something that we should be more aware of. So in your book and in your work, you've given us a whole bunch of ideas of how to pull away from that screen a little bit, including plug the phone in, in a room that is not called your bedroom, turn off the <laughs> like on and on and on from there. Is there one that is your favorite? If someone comes up to you in New York or somewhere else and says, hey, just give me one thing that I should be considering doing today. What, what, what's that one idea? I think it's to take a bigger step back and ask yourself what you want to pay attention to in your life. My biggest takeaway from how to pick up with your phone was that ultimately our lives are what we pay attention to, right? Because you're only going to remember what you pay attention to. You're only going to experience what you pay attention to. And so each of these momentary decisions about how to spend our attention adds up to how we live our lives. I mean, to the point that actually I've got these two bracelets on, one of them says pay attention because I want to remind myself of that. And that I think is really important as a way to frame your interactions with technology. Because if you just start with tips and tricks and hacks without having a positive goal to work towards and out without any sort of philosophical framework, you're probably going to fail. You're going to be changing your habits based on willpower. And that's a horrible way to change a habit. But if you can instead identify that, like, what I really want to pay attention to is the in-person activities that bring me joy or spending time with a particular friend or my kid or whatever, then the phone becomes an intrusion upon this goal. And it becomes a lot easier to be like, actually, I don't even, I don't want to be spending so much time on my phone, not because I'm relying on my willpower, but just because I know what I want to be spending my time on and my time is limited and my attention again can only be trained on one thing at a time. So I can't be paying attention to my phone and also pay attention to the things I've identified as my true priorities. So for me, I think I would say the first thing people should do is take a really big step back and just ask yourself, given that our time on earth is finite, what do you want to pay attention to? Well, it's a perfect pivot point into what I do want to pay attention to with you, which is your most recent book, The Power of Fun, which seems so 
flighty. And I hope you hear that the right way, because obviously if we're on the podcast together, I don't view it as flighty and soft at all. I think it's incredibly important and underrated. What did the idea of, man, we need to unpack and celebrate the power of fun with a community of readers. Where did that come from? Well, let me first ask you, just out of curiosity, if I may, like what what was your response with the flightiness? Like, what? Because I think that that's common. I'm just curious, yeah. why would fun seem flighty? I mean, I agree because it does to many people. It seems like the kind of thing that after you finish work and make sure all the emails are responded to, and the kids are in bed, and the kitchen's cleaned, and you've prepared for the following day, and got your shirt off for the following morning. If all that is done at that point, and only at that point, you should consider having fun. I think that's how a lot of folks view it. And the way you and I view it as instead, it's more foundational to everything else that we do throughout the course of a day. But I, I haven't heard anyone articulate that clearly. And then also expand upon the effect of fun, not being the result of a life well lived, but actually the cause of living well in the first place. Mm, yes. Yes. So the origin story was that I had written How to Break With Your Phone. And as part of that process, my husband and I were, and we still do actually, um, so we should get more back into it more consistently, but doing a digital Sabbath where we take a 24-hour break from all of our devices, normally from a Friday night to a Saturday night, which I really recommend people try. It's a really interesting experience and very eye-opening and a great conversation starter, especially if there's someone else in your life where you're like, you need to spend less time on your phone and they're totally resistant. Like, try try this. Blame me. It's fine. Anyway, I was in the middle of one of these breaks, actually in this very room I'm speaking to you from, and my husband was out of the house and my daughter was taking a nap. So I had this whole hour that I could use with for whatever I wanted to. And I couldn't think of a single thing I was really upset me because I like to think that I am a proactive person who has interests. I mean, I do have a great life, like just objectively, but I couldn't think of anything that I could look. In other words, I got so used to letting my time be filled by all this stuff on the phone that I didn't know how I wanted to fill my own time. So I had this mini existential freak out. And I ended up asking myself this question I'd asked people when I was researching how to break up with your phone, which I encourage people to ask themselves too, which is what's something you say you want to do, but you supposedly don't have time for? Because as we were just discussing, we're spending several hours a day mindlessly scrolling. So like there actually is some time to reclaim there. And my answer to that was that I wanted to learn how to play the guitar, which is because I have a guitar. I'm looking. Yep, it's on the floor right behind me as we're talking actually. But I'd never taken lessons. I have a background in piano. Anyway, I signed up for an adult guitar class at a children's music studio. It was like a BYOB evening guitar class with some other parents. And I started having this feeling during the class that was this like effervescent joy, right? Like this feeling of, buoyancy that really lasted not just for the class but for several days afterwards and it wasn't the skill that's what I thought was really interesting I was like maybe I'm just learning how to play a bar chord and that's making me really happy and I was like no that's not what it is there's something else going on and as a writer I'm obviously interested in words so I started thinking what's the word that describes this feeling what's the word and the word that came to mind eventually was fun and that was like well that's interesting fun I'm like, well, what's the definition of fun? And so I looked it up in the dictionary and it says things like it's um, amusement or enjoyment or lighthearted pleasure. And I thought, well, sure, those things do 
the, the feeling, but there's something deeper here. Like there's something very life affirming about this. It's not just that. And so I ended up re- reaching out to people on my mailing list and asking them to tell me stories that they would describe from their own lives as having truly been fun. And then trying to look for themes and trying to tease out or like develop my own definition. So as you just alluded to, what I came to conclude is that it's actually not trivial, trivial at all. The feelings, sorry, the moments in which we have the most fun some of the most treasured and joyful memories from our whole lives Mm. and you know I came up with a proposed definition which I'm happy to talk about but I came to conclude as you were just saying that it's not just the result of human thriving and I think that's what a lot of people think you can only have fun if you're already doing well or if all your responsibilities are already done so it's not but it's not just that it actually is a cause of human thriving and so now I am just as radicalized about fun as I am about phones (laughs) I'm grateful for it because we need to be radicalized on both. So uh, we've talked a little bit about phones. Let's stay a little bit more in the lane of fun right now. Okay. You define what what Webster views fun as being. I'd like you to define, though, Catherine Price, what you've defined fun as. So uh, give us give us your definition of fun. Sure. Ooh. So true fun, and I and I call it true fun because we just are. And I'm not insulting any of us with this, but we're a little sloppy about how we use the word fun, I think, because there hasn't been a really good definition of it. So we tend to use the word fun in all sorts of casual contexts, even even in situations where it's like you didn't really have fun with someone, but you find yourself saying, oh, that was so fun. We should do it again. And you're like, we're never going to do that again. How about how about never? You know, it just never work for you. But my definition of true fun is that it's a confluence of three states. And those three states are playfulness, connection and flow. And to expand upon that by playfulness, I don't mean that you have to kind of play games or, you know, my nightmare is like having to play charades. So not, not that it's more just having a spirit of lightheartedness and doing things just for the sake of doing them and abandoning perfectionism, which itself is so liberating, especially for adults. Then connection was because when I read through people's stories, there was nearly always this feeling of having a special shared experience. And it was normally with another person. So I actually asked as part of my survey, I said, did anything about the stories you told me surprise you? And a number of people said, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed introvert. And yet all the stories, because I asked them to give me, I think it was four, four anecdotes, three in the past, and then something that they would like to plan or participate in the future that they thought would be fun, um, that they involved other people sometimes dogs, but normally other people. So I came to think that like, yes, it's occasionally possible to have fun on your own and for this sense of connection to be with your surroundings or with yourself or with the environment. But in the majority of situations, it's with another person. And then flow, the third component is when you're so actively engaged and present in what you're doing that you can actually lose track of time. Um, So the quintessential example is like a person playing, you know, an athlete playing a game or someone playing a piece of music, but like I'm in flow right now with you in this conversation. You you can have flow in all sorts of different contexts and in different durations of time. But what I realized is that, you know, all three of those states are fantastic on their own, but when all three happen at once, the center of that Venn diagram is what I consider to be true fun. Mm. And that really opened up a whole world of curiosity and investigation for me because that gives you something to actually lock into from a research perspective there's very little research about fun per se and i think both because it's thought of as frivolous and also because there's not a good definition 
If you define it as playfulness and connection and flow, there's a ton of research on each of those three states. And each of them is really good for both our mental and our physical health. So that led me to conclude that, though it sounds kind of crazy to think about it this way, fun actually could be considered a health intervention. And that just blew my mind in the best way. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. And I love reading it. It also begins to challenge the uh, the construct of the, the next question, which is, I don't have time for this. I've got a big job. I've got a lot of responsibilities. We've got kids or whatever else the other excuses we give ourselves for not having fun might be. And yet your research and then your book puts forward this idea of, yeah, you don't have time not to be fun, to pursue this worthy cause. So talk a little bit about why people choose not to have fun or at least not true fun. And how can we begin taking a deeper dive toward it? I think there's a lot of different reasons people push back against the notion of prioritizing fun. And one is that you can't be a quote unquote serious person who cares about serious issues, of which there are many, and care about fun. And to that, I would say, well, who said life has to be zero sum, right? Like, why can't you both care about fun and also care about serious issues? And what's more, I would say that in order to do something about anything serious, you have to have energy. And I'm sorry, but doom scrolling through social media or like, you know, reading through feeds that make you angry or posting things that are just essentially rants like that to me is the definition of frivolous. That's not solving the problems. That's making you and other people miserable without doing anything about it. Far better, I would say, to have experiences that fill up your tank so that you actually can have the energy to be proactive. What's more, when we have fun with other people our differences are erased. We don't see them as different political parties or religions or nationalities or what have you. Like we we connect as humans, which is something we need more now than ever. I think also there's this interesting misconception we have that fun is something that happens outside of the context of normal life. You know, people say, I'm too busy at work to have fun. Well, why can't you have fun at work? <laughs> if you think about fun as being the confluence of playfulness and connection and flow, you start to realize there's many more opportunities for that than you might previously have thought in contexts in which you wouldn't have thought that was possible. And what's more, you may already be having moments of fun and not recognizing them as such because you didn't have a name for them. And so they kind of float by unnoticed and unacknowledged and therefore underappreciated. And you're not fully benefiting from them or internalizing how important they are. So what I personally, one of the things I loved about this project was just getting in the habit of looking through my day and saying, okay, well, did I have any, even if it was a totally mundane day, I should also say, I wrote this book during the lockdowns of the pandemic. I signed the book contract in April, 2020. So it was pretty crazy to be honing in on this playful connected flow idea when connection was so difficult. But then I started thinking, well, am I having any moments of playful connected flow? And it was like, yes, I still am. You know, I can appreciate them and I can actually generate more of them. Even talking on the phone to a friend for a couple of minutes and having a shared laugh. Like that was a moment of fun. I had this really, <laughs> my book bubble says, says this makes me sound weird, but I had a fun getting a cortisone injection once because I had playful connected flow with the radiologist. <laughs> it's like, but I think it's wonderful to notice those things because it turns fun from this experience you supposedly can only have outside of your normal life into something that is available to us in many more contexts than we realize. And that has the power to, boost our mood in the everyday, you know, and, and help us to be better people who are more proactive about less fun things too. What, tell me about the tie between fun and joy. Well, I would say that fun is a joyful state. 
I think you can experience joy and not have fun. But when I, I, I connect it more to, to happiness in the sense that, you know, we all are so obsessed with trying to become happier. And of course, there's lots of research about what is happiness. I mean, we can have a whole philosophical conversation about what is happiness, right? That would go on for <laughs> hours. But when we have fun, we just are happy. And to me, that was a powerful insight. Because then I was like, okay, well, if I can just figure out how to have more fun, then I would probably be happier without having to have these big philosophical conversations. Someone pointed out to me once that, you know, that would take a long time to discuss. But if I ask you, did you have fun last weekend? You could say yes or no pretty quickly. And I thought that was a really interesting insight because it shows how fun is kind of a more tangible thing that we just kind of get intuitively. Mm. So anyway, but the takeaway for me was, well, if I can figure out more opportunities for me to experience fun in the sense of playful connected flow, then the happiness question is kind of going to take care of itself on its own. Um, so that was very motivating to me. And uh, I don't know if happiness can just feel so nebulous and abstract and kind of we torture ourselves over it in a way that fun, fun we can doesn't. find pretty clearly and pretty accurately. And we know yeah. it when we feel it. We know you, when we feel it. Exactly. You helped us have a little bit more fun going forward with the word spark to, without going into a ton of detail, because I really do want our, our listeners to check out your book. But <laughs> why spark? And, and from those words, is there one in particular that we need to become aware of? Sure. So. The overarching goal of the power of fun was to turn this nebulous word fun that we don't pay much attention to into something that we do pay attention to and that it's much more under our control because there's an element of serendipity to it. It can feel kind of like I, I like to compare it to romance, right? Like you can set the stage for it, but if you try too hard, it's going to run away. But like, how can you turn this into something that we have a bit more control over? And the first step to me was to create a more concrete definition. So that's where the playful connected flow comes in. But then I'm like, okay, that's great. But then how do you create more playful connected flow? Like, how do you break that down into something even more tangible? So I came up with this framework that I call spark for how to do so. And the five steps of that are to make space for fun, both mentally and emotionally, and sometimes physically too. But you know, what we're talking about, how do you actually clear space in your schedule and your mind so you actually can prioritize fun? The P is for pursuing passions and also hobbies and interests, which is basically having a lot of experiences in the world, gaining a lot of skills and knowledge so that you have more opportunities to connect with people in this playful connected flow sense. And also just to enjoy your own life. Cause like, let's be honest, you're not always going to have the confluence of playfulness and connection and flow. Cause that's kind of a hard target, but anything that sparks any of those states is a good use of your time and hobbies and passions and interests are enjoyable things by definition. The A was for, is for attract fun. And that both has to do with kind of reorienting your approach to life so that you have more of what I think of as a fun mindset. And then also having practical strategies for ways that you can structure your interactions with other people to help them get into more of a state that's conducive to playful connected flow. The R is for rebel, and that's my favorite, so I'll save it for a second. I love it too. And then key... K is for keep at it. And the idea there is that fun is like exercise where you can't just do it once and then forget about it. Like it's going to have to be an ongoing effort to keep it a priority because the rest of life is going to rush in and take its place. And the basic idea there is to always have something to look forward to and to identify the activities and the people and the settings that are the most likely to generate fun for you personally. Can't be guaranteed, but the most likely so that you can then prioritize those things. I think of those as fun magnets, the people and the settings and activities that each of us, we have a personal collection, find the most likely to generate fun and prioritize that. But yeah, my favorite was um, Rebel. Because I looked <laughs> through people's stories and I was like, there's this theme popping out where people are not rebellion in like a 
destructive way or as i said like not like a james dean kind of rebellion but just this like playful deviance kept popping out of just people doing things that broke the rules of adulthood just like a little bit and created this feeling of having a special shared experience with whomever they were with and just doing stuff that was yeah playfully deviant so the example i love to share is someone who told me that she had this just a ton of fun when she and some friends um on a friday morning they ditched work and childcare responsibilities they tucked flasks into their purses, and then they snuck out to a 10.30 a.m. showing of the movie Bad Moms, which <laughs> struck me as just hilarious on so many levels. But I was like, that's the quintessential example, right? Like, no no one was harmed in the making of that Friday morning, but it was so fun because they did multiple things that they, quote unquote, weren't supposed to do. And then the fact that it was Bad Moms just takes it to a next level. But it's like that, you know, even just like foregoing your educational podcast or the news while you're driving home from wherever you're going and instead turning on some song that you loved as a teenager, like too loud and singing along, like even that can act, that can serve as an active playful rebellion. So I really encourage people to just, I think the, the underlying idea there is getting a kick out of your own life. So like saying yes or generating more ideas for like, what would just give you a kick? Like, cause we deserve that. <laughs> and it's an easy way to kind of frame yourself towards having more fun. Catherine, for those listening to your voice, arms now crossed thinking, you know, I don't like that movie and I don't like comedies. <laughs> in fact, I don't like any movies and I'm not sure I'm wild about life sometimes. For those who don't feel joyful or happy or fun in many circumstances, what's one thing they can begin doing today to step toward that? One thing I love is the practice of noticing delights. So I don't know if these particular arm crossing people are going to buy this or not, but I'll, I'll go for it. I read a book called The Book of Delight by this poet named Ross Gay and it really inspired me to notice and pay attention to things that delight me. It's kind of a modified gratitude practice, but the idea is basically like when you're going through your day, just notice anything that sparks a bit of delight. And you can kind of define that how you want to. For me, absurdity frequently sparks delight, but it also could just be like a pretty cloud or like a blossom on a tree, like really doesn't matter how small. And then when you notice it, you ideally put a finger up in the air and you say out loud delight. And there's actually a scientific backing to the idea that First of all, framing yourself to or training yourself to notice the positive, labeling it out loud with a physical gesture. All those things have been documented to really produce a boost in mood. And then the next step, next level, oh, arms crossed people, is to share it with someone else. So in my case, well, I have a delight practice, for example, going out with my daughter who's seven. So that's incredibly sweet and delightful in and of itself to have her say delight and point things out to me. But also like I think a great use of technology is actually to have text message chains with people where you're just sharing delights. It's a great way to become closer with people and stay in touch and, you know, talk about things that are not just related to politics or the pandemic or whatever. I found that to be very powerful. My other bracelet actually says delight. I had these two bracelets made pay attention and delight because I wanted to remind myself of that. And that seems to be something that's like really easy for people to adopt and doesn't feel like a burden, doesn't feel like adding work. And so I would suggest just playing around with the idea of just noticing delight and see where that takes you. You know, you're dropping all these quotes that I was going to ask you about if we had time. One of them was that quote on delight with your finger up in the air. <laughs> Another one was about this idea of a romantic relationship and fun being kind of similar. If you try too hard, you're going to fail in both. Uh, I think where I want to leave it before we get into the Live Inspired 7, and we will sprint through those together, is a quote that I wrote down from you and I underlined it twice. Ooh. We are not problems waiting to be fixed. We are lives waiting to be lived. Yes. <laughs> I think what it, what it, well, what stood out that about why did you underline that twice? 
Because I think most of us, and we could talk even more about how you say, you know, uh, decrease your list making. You know, like there's, there's, there's so much of our work and our lives that feel like something we've got to do and, and solve. And th- this quote for me just reminds me, maybe that's not the case. We are not problems waiting to be fixed. We are lives waiting to be lived. Mm-hmm. And I think the next line there is something like the living starts right now. You know, like I think part of the inspiration for that for me was the, just reflecting on my daughter and how so much of education or, or childhood is conveyed as if it's preparation for the next stage. What's the next stage? You're going to study for this because of the next stage instead of being like, this is your life oh. right now. Like childhood yeah. is life. Like it is all like, like this today is my life. Like it's not next week. <laughs> so just yeah. this reminder that you need to live it now because it's these little moments. I mean, there's a great Mary Oliver quote about that too. Just as the little moments that add up to our lives and Annie Dillard, I think it's Annie Dillard. Anyway. I love Annie Dillard. Yeah. Yeah. How we live our days is how we live our lives. It's like, I mean, it's just a reminder. I think that, you know, I, I focus a lot on, on joy and delight and fun and things like that in my work recently, but running through it all is just this existentialism of like, we're all going to die, you know? So like, how do we want to live? Yeah, it's not new, but I think too frequently we miss what is right in front of us. So I'm grateful for the reminder. And my friend, as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions with hopefully seven quick fire answers. It begins like this. Catherine Price, what is the most influential book you've ever read? Well, right now it's the Book of Delights. I don't know if that's my lifetime answer, but we'll take it. The Book of Delights. Delight! Index finger in the air, delight. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a young woman growing up in New York, a little girl, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? It will sound ironic considering I've been working so hard on this, but I do think the ability to be focused and present and not feel pulled in multiple directions. Mm. All in. If your home caught fire and your spouse and your daughter are out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back with? The first thing that comes to mind is a gift my husband made for me, which I'm looking at right now, which is a book he made for my 40th birthday where he had all of my friends write me essentially like gratitude letters and letters of friendship spanning my entire life. It's amazing. Show off. There are a lot of husbands right now crossing their arms as you share that. (laughs) If, If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you want to be seated next to? There's a lot of people I'd like to be sitting next to. The first one who came to mind was Lin-Manuel Miranda. So wow. aspirations. Yeah. I hope you but, get that, that, that. Oh, you know, gosh, I wanted to ask you about Hamilton. What's your favorite song from Hamilton? All of them. Um, no, my favorite song to sing along to at the moment is Satisfied. But I think that all of them have their individual marks of genius. But somewhat ironically, considering how much I love it, I would never want to see Hamilton again because I find it too sad. I think it's like Les Mis and the fact that it seems sad until you recognize how redemptive and grace-filled and awesome it is. But you're, you're right. Well, that too. But like, I just, I just, I just cry so much. It's just, <laughs> I'd rather just watch the first act and then like stop sometime around Thomas Jefferson coming home and then just start from the beginning again. What's the best advice that Thomas Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, or anyone else has ever given you? So the best advice you've ever received is... <laughs> well, not from those three. I think that that creative drift thing I alluded to at the beginning is some of the best advice that I've received. Just, you know, follow your interest, do your best at what you're doing and see where it leads. 
what advice would you give yourself at age 20? If you could go back in time before that diabetes diagnosis, before the books rolled out, before your baby and everything else shows up in your life, what advice do you wish you had received? I think being nicer to yourself. Stop being so self-critical. Like, what's the point? You know, it took me a really long time to not just engage in so much self-flagellation and hatred. Catherine Price, author, mom, leader, speaker, friend, researcher, inquisitive human being, fun person. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She lived and laughed and loved. Catherine Price lived and loved and certainly did laugh. And she shared that joy and the power of fun with the rest of us. I want to thank you, Catherine, for, uh, for your work, for your life and for your love. All of those things have affected me deeply. Thank you so much. This is really been a true pleasure and I dare say a delight. (laughs) (laughs) Then put your index finger up and share it loud. There you go. My friends, that is Catherine Price. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. I'm always looking for ways to take action on tips that our guests share. Leaving my conversation today with Catherine Here's what I'm asking myself. Two questions. How can I spark more fun in my life? How can I spark a little bit more fun in my life? Meaning, how am I making space for fun, pursuing passions, attracting more fun, rebelling a little bit, and keeping after it? How can I spark a little bit more fun in my life? It's a great question. I think we all should be asking. And then secondly, what's something that I want to do, but I just don't have time for? Instead of doom scrolling social media, I think we're all guilty of it, or binge watching Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever else you're tuning into, what could I do that would actually equate to true fun rather than fake fun? Those are the two takeaways for me, this idea of sparking true fun and making sure that what I'm focusing on is the kind of stuff that brings connection, not only to me, but to those that I care for, those that I love. If you enjoyed hearing from Catherine Price and you look forward for ways to set healthy boundaries with your technology, you would love the conversation that I had with my guest. Her name is Tiffany Schlain. Tiffany Schlain is the best-selling author of 24-6, not 24-7, 24-6, and the founder of the Webby Awards. You can hear Tiffany's actionable steps by going to the website, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Once you get there, click on Tiffany Schlain. You're going to hear ideas on how you can reset and rebalance your relationships with technology, and you will love it. One of the most powerful podcasts that I think I have on actionable takeaway steps on technology. So check it out. You'll love it. John O'Leary, inspires.com forward slash podcast, and it's episode 306. So my friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired family. And I want to remind you that the foundation is firm, the headwind may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live Inspired. One thing I love most about my friends at Keeley Companies is their spirit and their passion for giving back to their communities across the nation. Keeley Companies was recently named a top corporate philanthropist by the St. Louis Business Journal, and I could not think of a more deserving organization to receive that honor. 
In 2021 alone, the Keeley Cares Foundation served countless people in need, donated more than $2 million, and served for more than 20,000 hours. On top of that, they added an astounding 13 new charities to their ever-growing wall of compassion. Here at the Live Inspired Podcast, we are proud to partner with Keeley Cares throughout the year, improving our communities with time, with talent, and with treasure. You can learn more about their unbelievable impact by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.